Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series titled His Story, Our Story. Rather than a series of unconnected events, the Bible is one story, it's the story, and it's also our story. Thanks for joining us. We've been in a teaching series called His Story, Our Story, and and what we're learning, I want to put this up on the screen so we're all on the same page of what we're learning together. Would you read this with me? It says, rather than a series of unconnected events, the Bible is one story, it's the story, and it's also our story. So the, the Bible's the one true story. It's the one true story in the world that gives meaning to our experiences and direction to our lives. It gives us eyes to see the world through. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but there are many different ways to see the world and interpret what's going on. And the Bible is the one true way to give us eyes to see. If you're following in your notes, the Bible is the story that makes sense of life. It's the story that makes sense of life. Unfortunately... We don't always see life this way, and when we don't see life this way, when we lose sight of the story and the role we play in the story, we lose our way. My family went to see the the Lego movie yesterday, so I came across this quote that resonated with me. Author John Eldridge says this, For most of us, life feels like a movie we've arrived at 45 minutes late. What what am I doing? What is my role? What is my next step? What in the world is going on? Unfortunately, when we lose sight of the story and our part in the story, that's the way we live. And without understanding the story we find ourselves in, we won't begin to understand our lives. The Bible is the story that makes sense of our lives, and that's why this series is so important. In the first week of the series, we talked about Genesis chapter 1 and creation God created the world and everything in it, and he created us, human beings, to be his image bearers. We are made by God for God to do all of life with God. But just like every great story ever told, conflict arises in Genesis 3, and we see the perfect world God created and the perfect relationship that God enjoyed with his people shattered by sin. And in understanding the story of the fall in Genesis 3, the role we play is that we're all Adam and Eve. I mean, if Adam and Eve didn't sin in the garden, Brian Schwarberg would have. We are separated from God because of our sin. We've all sinned. And then last week, Steve taught in Genesis 12, and he taught the beginning of the promise or the covenant. God made this unbreakable, unconditional covenant with Abraham, and that promise included a people, a people, God's own people, a land and a blessing. And that was the beginning of seeing God bringing people back together who had once been scattered. So today, we pick up where the story left off last week with a man named Abraham and an unconditional promise. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. We're moving on from Genesis, although we'll touch on several chapters in Genesis. We're in Exodus chapter 1, verse 6. If you don't have a Bible, we have black Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. And Exodus chapter 1, verse 6 can be found on page 44 of those Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, please take that Bible home with you. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word. And we're going to be moving through the story this morning. And so it would be beneficial for you to have a copy of God's Word open just to follow 
where we're walking. So some backstory and context of where we pick up in Exodus 1 today. Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had a son named Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons, one of whom was named Joseph. We don't see really any good examples of families in the Bible, and this is no exception because Jacob had a favorite son, and his name was Joseph, and the other brothers despised Joseph because of it. They despised him so much that they sold him into slavery, and Joseph ends up in Egypt working at the palace. Things get even worse for Joseph in Egypt. He's accused and put in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And he serves time in prison. But over and over again in the story of Joseph, if you read the story of Joseph, you'll read these words. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. And the Lord was with him. And through an amazing turn of events, Joseph becomes second in command of all of Egypt with only Pharaoh above him. So as second in command in all of Egypt, Joseph oversees a grain-saving program because seven years of famine are coming. The only place to buy food in the entire world is Egypt, and Joseph oversees this entire venture. So Joseph's dad, Jacob, back in Canaan, sends the brothers to Egypt to buy food so they don't starve to death. And on one of those visits, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, and he says this. On the screen in Genesis 45, verses 5 to 8, it says, And now do not be distressed, and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now I I show you those verses to demonstrate how God was continuing his story. If you're following in your notes, God's story included sending his people to Egypt to save them. This was part of God's story. If this would not have happened, if God would not have sent his people to Egypt, they would have died in Canaan. End of story. But Jacob and the rest of his extended family, God's people of the promise, make their way to Egypt to survive the famine. And Pharaoh, the leader of all of Egypt, says these words in Genesis 47. Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. And if you know of any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. And then if you go to verse 27 in that same chapter, it says, now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and they were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Now, that's a truckload of information. But the reason I tell all you that, I want to put a map up on the screen. 
So do you see the green part of the map that's labeled Goshen? When we think of Egypt, most of what we think about is uh, desert, it's arid, you can't grow crops there, you can't graze cattle there. But there's one area of Egypt called Goshen that is great for farming and for raising cattle and for prosperous living. It's the Nile River Delta, and that's exactly where God sent his people. And that's exactly where Pharaoh let them live. And I want us to see, if you're following in your notes, God blessed the Israelites, but it wasn't his plan to leave them there. He blessed them, but it wasn't his plan to leave them there. And what we understand by seeing that map and understanding these verses in Genesis is the Israelites didn't start as slaves. Life was pretty good for them. They started as shepherds and farmers in some of the most fertile, farming, fruitful land in the world. And their numbers began to multiply. They started out with 70 people when Jacob came down, and now they're up at about 1 to 2 million. And what happens is the Israelites begin integrating into Egyptian society. Maybe the Israelites went to the same shopping malls. Maybe they wore the same trends in fashion. They read the same books, watched the same movies, went to the same schools, went to the same universities, cheered for the same chariot teams, used the same banks and libraries. And unfortunately, we've got to to know this. They began worshiping the false gods of Egypt. There were 114 false gods, and they began worshiping them. One author wrote this. I thought this was fascinating in understanding this integration into Egyptian society. He says, Life was so good that the majority of the Israelites, therefore, had little thought of ever leaving that country. They resolved they would settle there permanently. In fact, though God would not have it so, they became Egyptians as far as they could. They were part of the Egyptian nation. They began to forget their separate origin. And in all probability, if they had been left to themselves, they would have been absorbed into the Egyptian nation and lost their identity as God's special people. They were content to be in Egypt, and they were quite willing to be Egyptianized. To a large degree, they began to adopt the superstitions and idolatries and sins of Egypt. If you're following in your notes, this is so important. The Israelites began living Egypt's story. They began living Egypt's story, but these are God's people, people of the promise, people of the covenant. God brought them out of Canaan to save them, but his promise is that they would return to Canaan. He can't leave his people in Egypt. It would go against his promise, and it would go against his character. But the problem is, can you begin to see where we are right now? The problem is, how do you get the Israelites to leave the good life? To leave the bountiful fields and the prosperous world they live in? What would it take to get them to stop living the wrong story? What would the Lord the God of heaven do so his people, remember his people who are his partners in revealing his story to the world. What would he do to save his people from living the wrong story? If you're following in your notes, something had to change to stop living the wrong story. 
something had to change. They weren't going to change on their own. And that's where we pick up in the book of Exodus, chapter 1, verse 6. I'll read 6 and 7. I'm going to ask you to read verse 8 with me on your notes, and then I'll continue with 9 and 10 and ask you to read 11. But this is where we find ourselves. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then would you read verse 8 with me on your notes? Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. I'll continue in verse 9. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. Then would you read verse 11 again? It says, so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And then if you read into verse 14, it says, they made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields, in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Now, I don't want to stand here and theologically say that God caused their pain, but he certainly allowed it and used it in his story because I'm sure it wasn't long before those Israelites started thinking, uh, this isn't going so well. This isn't the good life Sometimes it takes a difficult situation for us to stop living the wrong story. And that's where the Israelites found themselves. So God's people find themselves enslaved. This group of people who know the promise of God. And I wonder if this phrase went through their minds. This is not how it's supposed to be. We know the promises of God. And I wonder how many of us here today would use words like, this is not the way I thought things would be. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And while we may not be in physical slavery like the Israelites, or in physical slavery like 70 million people around the world today, we are enslaved to sin. We're enslaved to habit patterns, many times things we've brought on ourselves. I want to share this piece of art with you. This is by uh, a young lady in our church named Alicia Alexander. We've been doing an art project throughout this series where each week different artists in the church uh, paint their reflections on the scripture we're studying. And Alicia painted this picture and used chain. And you can get the feel of mortar and brick and dirt and, and pain and the chains that they find themselves in in slavery. And then Alicia had one line in her description that stuck out to me that we'll come back to a few times today. She said, we all suffer from some sort of slavery. We all suffer. And if you're following in your notes, we are enslaved to anything or anyone that we believe will fulfill a need or desire apart from God. I want to say that again. We are enslaved to anything or anyone that we believe will fulfill a need or desire apart from God. And what we start doing is we start grasping for whatever we can in life. Relationships, 
different, different people in our lives, different situations in our lives. We try to control them and we grasp at things because we think they will satisfy our needs and our desires. And we do that rather than trusting God and submitting those needs and desires to him. And when we do that, we find ourselves enslaved. Right? Maybe we make one bad decision and we think it's not going to go any farther than that. It's a small thing. It won't go any farther. Nobody else needs to know about it. But now we find ourselves in so deep that we don't know how to get out. And we don't want to tell any other person about it because we're ashamed and we are trapped in slavery. That might be an addiction, whether that's a sexual addiction or pornography, alcohol, drugs, an eating disorder. But there are other types of bondage that often get overlooked But there are things that can enslave us that are just as harmful, just as addicting, and just as sinful. I want to invite you to turn your notes over to the back this morning. And what I'm going to do is I want to read through these types of bondage and slavery. Because I think sometimes we just don't understand where we're enslaved. And I want us to see that there are other ways that we're enslaved. And then it manifests itself in what we think of God or how we treat other people. But you might circle one of these if one of them resonates with you or make a note that this is what you struggle with. You might be in bondage, bondage to what others think about you or what you think of yourself rather than what God thinks about you. You might be in bondage to being or feeling needed. You rely on other people to bolster your self-worth. You are enslaved to being, to believing you are loved for what you can offer or do for people, not who you are. And it leads to this insidious lie that if you really knew me, you wouldn't love me. So I've always got to perform. You might be in bondage to believing you have a tragic flaw. There's something wrong with you. And there's, it's so much worse than everybody else. And it leads to this hidden shame. Or maybe you're in slavery to fear, and that looks different for different people, like fear of the unknown, bondage of feeling incompetent or incapable if you haven't mastered something. It leaves you paralyzed to act. Fear that your needs won't be met. You're enslaved to always thinking about how to figure out how to get your needs met. And along with that fear comes anxiety. You struggle to trust God to provide what you need. Or fear that you're going to miss out on something. You're enslaved to fulfilling all of your desires. Or maybe you're in bondage to controlling things. Your significance, your purpose is determined by having the final say over what happens to you. And if you're honest, it's easier and maybe even better to trust in yourself than to trust in God. Maybe you're in bondage to ensuring that life is comfortable and maintaining the status quo and preserving the peace without conflict, and you'll do anything to make that happen. Or maybe you're enslaved to perfection. You believe that you and others need to be mistake-free and perfect to have value. You're more concerned about being right than relating rightly, and this leads to trying harder and harder and harder. Like Alicia said, we all suffer from some sort of slavery. And then there might be some of you here and you find yourself in a situation that you didn't create, but man, it feels like slavery and you are in bondage to the situation. This would be like the children born into slavery while the Israelites were in Egypt. They didn't do anything to bring that on. So you might find yourself today walking through a season 
of cancer or depression, anxiety, a death, a loss of relationship, a child making bad decisions. You didn't bring that affliction on. And so I want to say this very sensitively. Could it be that in your affliction, God might be getting your attention and waking you up to something that you have been enslaved to and you didn't know it? Could he be waking you up to set you free? In 2012, uh, Sarah and I lost our twin daughters at 30 weeks. It threw me into a complete tailspin in my faith. And during that time, I read a book by Tim Keller uh, on suffering, and he made this statement that I'll never forget. He said, it is through suffering, it is through affliction, that we can ever answer the question, do you love God for who he is or what he can do for you? And it was in that moment that I realized I was enslaved to thinking that if I lived a certain way, God would bless me. If I just did more good things, the more blessed I'd be. I didn't cause my affliction, but God used it to reveal what I was in bondage to. And that was earning and trying harder, which led to a false view of God. And it impacted how I related to other people. God can use anything to reveal what we're in bondage to. Because we all suffer from some sort of slavery. And if we all are enslaved to something, then the question is, what do we do about it? And we can learn from the Israelites here. If you look over to Exodus chapter 2, we'll begin in verse 23, and I'm going to invite you to read 24 and 25 on your notes in the second grade box. But during their time of slavery and bondage, the Israelites came to the end of themselves And in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, we read, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And then would you read with me verse 24 and 25? It says, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. It's this crying out that sets everything in motion leading up to the exodus, which Steve will talk about next week. One author said, crying out is waking up. And if you're following in your notes, crying out means waking up to our bondage. It means waking up to our own bondage. It means realizing that we're not at home in Egypt. That things aren't fine. Living in slavery is not normal. That things must change. And this is really hard work. It is hard work. But it's not complicated work. If you're following in your notes, crying out requires one thing. One thing. Honesty. We have to be honest. It's a posture of humility where we name reality. Our cry to God, just like Israel's, flows from an honest assessment of who we are before God. And what we do when we cry out is we're confessing. We're saying, I can't do this. I can't free myself. I can't save myself. This is not how I want things to be. 
And what we need to know is when we cry out, if you're following in your notes, when we cry out, God listens, he sees, and he knows. He listens, he sees, and he knows. You may want to circle those three words in that second gray box. And did you catch what happened when their cry went up? God remembered. He remembered. And when the Bible says that God remembered, it it doesn't imply forgetfulness. God always remembers. He doesn't forget. It's part of his nature. So when we read a statement like God remembered, remembered, it places an emphasis on his character and on his faithfulness. And what it means is he looked on his children, the children of Israel. He looked down upon them And rather than remembering their sins, they're practically becoming Egyptians. They're worshiping Egypt's false gods. He didn't remember that. He remembered his friend Abraham, and he remembered how he had promised to bless these people and make a covenant with them. He remembered that. And when we cry out in a similar way, God doesn't hold our failures against us. He listens, he sees, he knows, and he remembers. That's the God we cry to. And so this morning, before we go on, we're going to take several minutes here because we don't slow down enough. I just thought about this this morning as I was thinking about some things. I don't take enough time to think about where I find myself enslaved. Where are things not going as they should be going? And so we want to practice this together. We've created space to give you an opportunity to get honest with God and get honest with yourself, to name reality. Has God brought something to mind as you've been listening? Or did something stand out to you on the back of the notes as we walked through those? What is it? Where is it that you find yourself in bondage? And have you cried out? Have you cried out? Have you come to the end of yourself and realized your best efforts aren't working? Where do you need him? And maybe a better prayer for you during this time is not, God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'll try harder. God, I'm so sorry, I'll do better, I'll do better. Maybe a prayer is, Lord, you've already set me free from this, but for some reason I'm not walking in that. Help me believe and trust that you've already set me free and what you say about me is true. I need your help to deliver me. And if you've cried out for deliverance in the past, maybe you're here and you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. I've cried out for deliverance like a thousand times and God is silent and I'm not even sure he still listens. Friends, keep crying out. We don't know how long the Israelites cried out before God responded. But be aware that God's answer to us might look different than we think or expect, but we can cry out knowing that there is a God who listens and sees and hears and knows and remembers. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you can cry out to God as well. You can just name, this is not how I thought things would be going. I can't save myself. I'm sick of this. I'm tired of this. I need a way out. He hears you. He hears you, but we want to give you these moments to simply slow down and talk to God and name reality. So do that in these next few minutes. God, thank you that you are a God who listens and sees and knows and remembers and that you are for us. 
God, hear our cry this morning. God, we need you. Convince us, God, that rather than grasping to secure our own freedom, that we can trust you. That we can trust what you've done for us and that you are faithful. God, we need you. God, thank you for hearing us when we call. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we see the Israelites were in slavery, and they responded by crying out. And then we see how God responds to the Israelites. And as we move through the story, if you look at Exodus 3, in verses 9 and 10, this is on the screen actually, this is the Lord speaking to Moses. And the Lord says, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. If you're following uh, along in your notes, this is how God responded. The Lord raised up a deliverer named Moses. God raised up a deliverer. And during this time, God revealed himself to Moses with his own personal name, Yahweh, or I am. And he told Moses to go to Pharaoh and be his representative so that Pharaoh might know the one true God and to let God's people leave Egypt and return to their story in the promised land. But Pharaoh was hard-hearted, and to accomplish that, God sent nine plagues to counter the false gods of Egypt. Each plague counters a false god. You can read about these in Exodus 7 to 10. And after these nine plagues, Pharaoh's heart was still hardened, and he actually worked the Israelites even harder in slavery. It got more brutal. So God tells Moses there's going to be one more plague. And after this plague, Pharaoh will let the Israelites leave Egypt. It would be the plague of the firstborn. And God told Moses to tell the people that at midnight, that night, the angel of death would go throughout Egypt and every firstborn son would die. But God gave special instructions to his people. He told Moses to tell the Israelites to celebrate a meal together. In your home, around a table, celebrate a meal, and this meal should be celebrated every year going forward. On this night, the meal would be called Passover. The centerpiece of the meal was lamb. Each family was to take a year-old lamb and kill it for the Passover meal. And they were not only to eat its blood, but to take the blood and put it on top of their door frames and on their doorposts. And then in Exodus chapter 12, verse 13, if you'd read this with me in the third grade box on your notes, we're told, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Now, I don't know how to say this any other way, but in every Israelite home that night, there was either a dead lamb or a dead son. It was one or the other. If you're following in your notes, God delivered his people through the sacrifice and blood of an innocent lamb. Through the sacrifice and blood of an innocent lamb, the lamb was a substitute. But even though God delivered the Israelites that night, it wasn't the ultimate deliverance that people needed. That 
that deliverance led to a physical freedom from oppression, but it didn't remove the bondage to slavery and sin that they face and that we face. If you're following on your notes, ultimately a greater deliverer and deliverance was needed. Jesus. They needed and we need a deliverance greater than the one that happened that night. As important as that lamb was in Egypt, we need another lamb. So fast forward 1,500 years from that night in Egypt. Jesus is sitting around in a home around a table with 12 of his closest friends eating the Passover meal. That's interesting. And Tim Keller, that pastor that helped me so much, says this about that night. There are three things you have at a Passover meal. You have the unleavened bread, and there's Jesus breaking the bread and saying, this bread is my body that will be broken for you. And then you have the four cups of wine. There's Jesus saying this wine represents his blood that would be shed. And then you always have a lamb. But there's no reference to lamb. There's no lamb on the table. And then Keller finishes with these words. They are so powerful. Keller says, do you know why there's no lamb on the table? Because the lamb was at the table. The lamb was deliberately removed from the Passover meal because Jesus Christ is saying, tonight, I am the lamb. My death is the central event to which all of the history of God's relationship to the world has been moving. And the next day, that innocent lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world would be nailed to a cross and die the death we deserved. And three days later, he would rise from the dead, defeating sin and death. And just like God didn't leave it up to the Israelites to save themselves, he made a way. When the Israelites cried out, the Lord took action and he provided a deliverer and deliverance. He did that for them and he did it for us. When we cry out, we can know that our deliverer has already delivered us. And he's waiting to help us. We just need to cry out. Today, as we close, I want you to know that there is a deliverer, and his name is Jesus. He's the true and better Moses. He's the complete revelation of God. He's the great I am. And all of God's promises and his covenant is fulfilled in Jesus. We have a deliverer and a deliverance. The Emancipation Proclamation was issued on January 1st, 1863. It declared that all slaves were free. But what happened all around the South the very next day on January 2nd, 1863, is every slave in the South continued to do what they'd always done because they didn't know they were free. Nobody bothered to tell them that. It took finishing the Civil War and then Reconstruction to actually make that a reality. And what happens to us spiritually is when we follow Jesus, we get stuck in bondage to a sin pattern, and then we start thinking, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And you're right. It's not the way it's supposed to be. So I'm here to tell you today, if you're in Christ, you're free. 
You are no longer a slave to sin. The Bible teaches we died to sin. We don't have to be enslaved and in bondage anymore. If you're enslaved to anything now, it's Jesus, which is great because his plans for you are way better than your own plans. But the question we need to ask, if you're following on your notes, is am I grasping for freedom or trusting Jesus? Right? Are we grasping at everything to get free? Or are we placing our trust in the fact that we have a deliverer and he has delivered us? And when I say trust Jesus, please don't hear me say it won't require effort. There will be steps we need to take. Some of them will be very difficult. And it may look different than you think or expect it will look. But the answer to freedom is not to practice the art of sin management. This is how I lived for a number of years. Sin management is where you try harder to be your own savior. The answer is not to try harder. It's to place our trust in Jesus in order to be reminded that it's only in him that we have any hope of being set free from the bondage we're in. And that's why this is a daily, hourly, maybe a minute-by-minute minute reminder on some days. Through the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we have power over sin that we can choose the better way of Jesus. We don't have to be enslaved any longer. So we're going to close by singing this song named Trust You. And I, I will readily admit there are some days or songs when I stand in this room and I sing, but I don't think about what I'm singing. The words come out, but they're, they're not registering. Let's not let that be right now. What I want us to do is to sing these words, this declaration, this prayer that, Lord, I trust you even when it's hard. I want to trust you. It's the better way. And what I want to ask you to do is bring what you named 10 minutes ago that has you in bondage and has you in slavery. Bring that to the present and bring your cry to him that you cried out 10 minutes ago to the present and marry those things together as we sing words that say, I trust you. How can you think of trusting him rather than grasping to free yourself from what enslaves you? I believe we can do that. And I believe it's powerful when we do that. So when I invite you to stand, I want to invite you to stand right now and we're going to do those two things together. We're going to cry out to the Lord and declare our trust in him. And if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, the Bible tells us that when all of us at one time were not followers of Jesus, we were still enslaved to the power of sin. And so today, if today is the day you've woken up to that reality, then I invite you to sing this song. May this be the first thing you do is to sing this song and say, I trust you. I want to trust you, Jesus. And you can sing this with new understanding today. But let's sing this together as our cry and as our prayer. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.